Praise the Lord. As you open your Bibles to the book of Acts, we continue to look at the Acts of the Apostles, and we'll continue in chapter 10. I don't know about you, but the more that I study in this wonderful, historical, divinely inspired book of the Bible that's so meticulously recorded for us by the Gospel writer Luke, as it records the events of the early church, I just feel so awed and just enamored by the fact that that we are the 21st century manifestation of a great divine work that God began 2,000 years ago. We're just a continuation of the body of Christ, the church. You know, each century or each uh, uh, decade doesn't uh, create a new church. We are just a continuation of what was begun generations ago. And so it's worth our while to go back, to look at our roots. It's very important that we go back to, to understand what was God doing then and how does it impact what we do today as the church. Are we being faithful to the original mission that God gave the church back at the very beginning that uh, in Jerusalem at Pentecost? And so we have followed along in the developments of that early church and those early believers and the leaders of the church and so we're in chapter 10, and, and I'd like to do just a very quick review for those of you that were in the evangelism conference back in the spring. We, we identified three basic verbs, I guess you would say, uh, that would make up a, a most basic uh, definition of evangelism. We simply said it would be go and know and show. If we do that, we can do evangelism. Number one, you can't sit at home. And, and, and think about helping lost people to know Jesus Christ. You can certainly pray, That's, and we'll talk about that. But you've got to go. You've got to get up out of your comfort zone. You've got to go out there to where they are, and you'll see that played out. Not only, that, not only do we go, but we need to know. And in that, we are implying that you need to develop, we need to develop relationships. Evangelism is best done through meaningful relationships that we develop with co-workers, schoolmates, neighbors, family members, friends, wherever God may take us. It's important that we take the time to get to know people. To know, you don't have to start talking to them right away about religious things. It's important to get to know things that are important to them and develop a relationship and begin to earn their trust and win the right to be able to talk to them about something so powerful and personal as their faith with the Lord and their relationship with the Lord. And then once you get to know them, by all means, show them. Show them the way. Show them the Savior. Show them the gospel message. And if we follow this strategy, which you'll find you played out right here on the pages of the uh, uh, book of Acts, as the early church is going, they are knowing and they are showing. And so today, as we continue to look at how God is working in the life of the early church, particularly as we focus upon the apostle Peter, you know, the, we talked about Saul of Tarsus and how God has raised him up, and now he's kind of put him over on the shelf, over in Tarsus, his home uh, city, uh, where he, his homeland, where he's just basically getting groomed and prepared. He'll come back on the scene in a few chapters, and you'll notice that Peter will begin to fade. But for the, for the time, for the meantime, Peter is in the spotlight. Simon Peter is. And so as we continue here, you're going to see that this concept of, of evangelism is very much in the forefront of what God is calling his people to do and to be. And so I want to draw your attention to what I consider to be, as we look at chapter 10, three key elements in being effective in evangelism. And, and I would use evangelism synonymously with disciple making, because I don't think you can have one without the other. If we're going to be effective in evangelizing, we've got to be effective in making disciples. You're not evangelizing if you're not making disciples, and we'll talk about that. So the first of the elements that we'll focus on as we begin to look here in chapter 10, pick up where we left off in chapter 10, is prayer. I, I want to just challenge you to consider that when it comes to, to evangelizing and carrying out the mission of evangelism, that prayer is the origination of evangelism. It starts with prayer. Dear friend, if you're not a prayer warrior, you can't be a soul winner. 
If you're not interested in talking to God and touching base with Him and communicating with Him, I can promise you, you will be thwarted in your efforts to win others to Christ and to disciple uh, lost people to be followers of Christ. Jesus understood the significance of the connection between prayer and evangelism. In Luke chapter 10, verses 2 and 3, it says, And He was saying to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore beseech the Lord of the harvest that He will send forth laborers into the harvest. Jesus understood that we need to pray. When it comes to winning lost people to, to Christ and bringing people into the kingdom, you've got to start with prayer. And I think it's interesting the terminology, the words that Jesus uses intentionally in that expression when He says, Beseech the Lord of the harvest. And He's talking about God the Father. When it says, beseech the Lord of the harvest, that word, if you look it up in the dictionary, it means to beg. It means to ask earnestly. And when we go before the Lord concerning those who are lost, seeking to carry out one of our greatest missions, the Great Commission, if you will, then we need to be praying. And we need to be praying in a very serious way. We need to be begging God to use us and to cause the church to be effective in reaching others. And so what you will see as we go back into chapter 10, you'll see that there are two men, two very different men, who are doing just that. It, as, I, as you may recall from the last message in chapter 10, as we looked at Cornelius, he's a Roman centurion. So he's a man of power, military power. He, can, he rules uh, and commands a hundred Roman soldiers. He's there in, in the mo one of the most popular cities, the capital of the Judean region, if you will. He's a man of power. He's a man of, of, of prominence. He's popular, but he's a man of prayer. We see that. And God responds to the heartfelt prayers of faith. And I believe that what you see is a man who is praying by faith. You know, God said through, to Isaiah, through the prophet Isaiah, then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry and God will say, here I am. God hears your prayers, ladies and gentlemen. If you pray by faith, I can promise you, God hears prayer. There's no problem with God's hearing. The problem is we don't do the praying part. But Cornelius, a God-fearer, was praying. Now, he wasn't a, a Jew, but he believed in the God of the Jews. And, and I believe that, that Cornelius was coming before the Lord and he was praying. In fact, as you look in chapter 10, verse 2, it talks about Cornelius, a devout man, one who feared God with all his household, who gave alms generously to the people and prayed to God always. This wasn't just a fluke incident in the life of this Roman centurion. This was a matter of daily practice. He was always praying to God. And in this instance, he was praying and communicating with God. And I believe that he was praying by faith. It's interesting in Hebrews chapter 11. Faith and prayer <laughs> go together too. You, you might as well hang it up. If you're not praying by faith, you're not doing any effective praying. In fact, in Hebrews in chapter 11, verse 6, it says, listen to this. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. I believe that though it wasn't a complete knowledge of God, I believe that Cornelius was praying with the best of the knowledge that he had. He was praying, I believe, in seeking after God. So though his faith relationship with God was, was not complete, it was sincere. I believe that on that day around 3 o'clock, when he was praying, I believe he was seeking after God, the true God, to really know Him. And I believe that there are people all around you and me today who could be classified as seekers. They're not Christians. They may not be actively involved in church. But deep in their hearts, they know something is missing. They're seeking after God. Maybe they're looking in the wrong places. Maybe they're just praying in a general way to, to the man upstairs. Or, but they know in the heart that something is missing and they're seeking after God. And the only thing that's missing 
is a faithful witness. And that's what was missing in the life of Cornelius. I believe that God prepares the hearts of prospects that He would take us to when you and I pray. That's why Paul put emphasis on prayer in Ephesians. He's talking about, you know, uh, he says, pray always in the Spirit with prayer and supplication. Pray always and pray for the saints, you know, as you persevere. Paul understood that. Listen, you and I should be praying for people that God places on our hearts that we sense need the Lord. Don't bother going to them if you're not willing to take time to call their name out to God, to be burdened in your heart for God, and then let the Lord lead lead you accordingly. But prayer was a part of Cornelius' life, and I believe that God responded to the heartfelt prayers of this man of faith who was seeking after God. And then we see that God, at the same time, it's interesting, in chapter 10, there's, there's, God is working in Caesarea, but 30, 30 miles to the south in the town of Joppa, in, in the house of a tanner uh, by the seaside, he's also working with Simon Peter. It would be great if we had split, t- uh, split screen TV. You know where, you know, some of the, the productions today, you know, especially if it's drama and suspense, they'll have the one scene up here at the top of your screen where this is going on, and yet at the same time, and, uh, and they'll show, they'll split the screen, they'll show something else. So you're watching two scenarios developing simultaneously. This is what is happening. Meanwhile, back in Joppa, Peter, Simon Peter, who is recognized leader of the church, one of the apostles of Christ, and, and we see him praying also. And I believe God will speak to Peter's heart and we'll see that. As we look in chapter 10 in, in, um, in, in verse 9. The next day as they went on their journey. Talking about the men that, that uh, Cornelius had sent to go get Peter just as God had instructed him in the vision. It says the next day they went on their journey and drew near the city. Peter went up on the housetop to pray about the six hours. So it's about noon. Then he became very hungry and wanted to eat. But while he made, re- while they, his, his host, made ready, he fell into a trance. I don't know if you've ever been so hungry, you know, lunchtime, you come, you know, I can remember working on the farm, you know, we'd be working hard that morning and come home and usually my mom, you know, she'd have lunch ready for us and if for some reason maybe she had a cross baby or a teething baby or maybe just got behind on some chores and, and lunch wasn't just ready just then and, you know, we're coming in the house, you know, dirty and, and hungry and we're expecting homemade biscuits and, you know, all the things that go on the table and, and she says, well, it'll be just a little bit before lunch, you know. It seems like eternity. You know, we're sitting out there waiting. We can smell the biscuits, bacon, you know, or whatever else she's cooking. And our stomachs are growling and we're drooling. And, you know, I, I, but I don't ever remember falling into a trance. But maybe you've been so hungry that like Peter, but you see, Peter goes up on the top of the, the rooftop. Now you say, well, that's strange. You climb up on top of the house. I've heard about getting you're powerfully hungry. But in that day, they had flat roofs and it was customary that they would put their patio up on the top of the house. Have a little veranda and on a nice day you can go up there and sit under that veranda in the breeze and look around the city or town or whatever. And so Peter's taking the time out. He's going, I'll just go up and spend some time in prayer. I'm so hungry anyway. So he goes up and he's in this deep prayer time of a, almost like, like a trance. And so he fell in, in verse 11 and, and saw heaven opened and an object like a great sheet bound at the four corners descended to him and let down to the earth. In it were all kinds of four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air. You know, the, the commentary suggests that the, the, the symbolism of the, of the sheet with the four corners suggests that this, this, uh, this collection of, of animals represented every kind of animal on the face of the earth. Uh, domestic animals, wild animals, birds, creeping things. I, I would think that would include bugs and whatever. Uh, everything, you know, they were being lured down before Peter. Now remember, he's very hungry. So the thing that's predominant on his mind is eating. And God seizes up on that to teach Peter in this prayer time, in this trance vision, if you will. God is going to teach Simon Peter a very powerful, powerful lesson that sets the stage for where we're going. 
Because in this time of prayer, God is going to show Peter something. In fact, a voice came, verse 13, a voice came to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. You notice it doesn't say, now don't kill that one and eat that one. That's unclean. He said, just any of it. Take any of it, Peter. Kill it, eat it. And Peter said, not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything common or unclean. And a voice spoke to him again. A second time, what God has cleansed, you must not call common. This was done three times, and the object was taken up into heaven again. God said something to Peter that would impact the way that he thought about serving God. Prayer is an important tool whereby God uses to speak to his church, to teach his people, teach us, to instruct us. In carrying out the work of the Lord. You know, in your worship guides, you saw an announcement. I hope you did. Now, if you didn't, go in there and check. Because we're calling our church into a solemn assembly of prayer on the 27th of August. This is the Wednesday we have our annual church conference. Just prior to that church conference at 6.30, we'll assemble together for one purpose and one purpose only. And that is to come before God, our hearts open, our spirits open to Him. We will come together in a time of confession and repentance. We want to make sure that everything between us individually and as a corporate body is as it should be to the Lord as we get ready to embark upon this new church year. This will be a time of acknowledging to the Lord how great He is and awesome He is and faithful and all the other wonderful attributes. It will be a time of prayer in which we can also acknowledge to the Lord our needs and our dependency upon Him. I urge you to make sure that you're here. For those of you that are able, we're going to ask you to consider fasting for a portion of that day or all of that day so that you can focus your heart and your mind and your spirit on this special season of prayer. It will be a solemn assembly of the people of God before we embark upon a new church year to seek the face of God. And I ask those of you that can fast in preparation for that that you would do that. But most of all, I ask that you begin now, even now, praying for that solemn assembly. Because I believe God is going to speak to our hearts as we prepare to move forward to accomplish the vision that God has given Cornerstone Baptist Church. And I'll be honest with you, ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, I don't want to move forward into a new year. I don't want to take one step in the direction of the future without being absolutely in the center of God's will. And I want to know in my heart that we have come before the Lord and we have offered our supplications, our petitions, our confessions, and we have sought His face and sought His will and that God will direct us to accomplish the things that are important to Him and fulfill the vision that He's given our church in the area of evangelism, of disciple-making. And that is one of the key things that I believe we ought to be praying for that night. So please... Put that at the top of your agenda. So you see that God is using prayer as Cornelius is seeking the Lord and as God is directing Simon Peter, it's in the medium of prayer. I believe that's where evangelism starts. Individually for you and me as as individual believers, but also as a church. I believe we need to have concerted times of prayer that God would lead us to the people that are like the Corneliuses that are out there in our community. Who are even right now, whether they're teenagers or young adults or senior adults, middle-aged adults, whether they're in the upper echelon of, uh, of the economic scale or, or, or maybe poor, it doesn't matter. The fact is, if they're seeking after God, then you can bet God has a purpose for you and I to reach them with the message of the gospel. So prayer is the origination of evangelism, as we see here. But as the story continues to unfold, I want to also challenge you to see that obedience, obedience is the activation of evangelism. You can pray all you want to. You can have and come out of that prayer meeting with the best intentions and, and all kinds of wonderful ideas. And you can be inspired and, and, and charged up. And then yet, if you are un Willing to be obedient. If you are disobedient and carrying through what God has put on your heart, then evangelism falls apart. Obedience is the activation of evangelism. To use that old expression, this is where the rubber hits the road. You can talk, you can pray. 
But sooner or later, you got to go. You got to be, be obedient. You got to be obedient to what the Lord said to do. What did the Lord say to do? In Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, He says, Go therefore. Now, He's not just talking to the early apostles, He's talking to all Christians. He said, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. He's not just talking to apostles and preachers and deacons. If you're a born-again believer in Jesus Christ, if Christ dwells in your heart and the Spirit of God is residing within you, then He's talking to you. The business of making disciples does not rest with the leaders of the church. The business of making disciples rests with the church, the membership. When, when you stand before God and I stand before God one day on that day of, 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 of judgment, uh, rewards if you will, for those of us who, who are Christians, listen, God's not going to ask you in general how did your church do in making disciples? He already knows that. He, he's not going to ask you how did your preacher do in making disciples? Or how did your pastoral team do or your deacons do in making disciples? Hey, listen, dear sister, dear brother, the Lord is going to say to you, how did you do in the years that you were blessed to walk on the face of the earth, having the abilities and the resources that I gave you, how did you do? How did you do in making disciples? So as your pastoral team, I, we understand, I understand as your pastor, that it's my responsibility, as Ephesians 4.11 tells us, as the pastors, that we are here to equip you to do what God has called you to do and expects you to do. No excuses. And with that, that means not only do we pray, but we have got to be obedient to go. Now, I want you to see the role of obedience in the life of a secular, and I emphasize secular leader. Because to this point, Cornelius is not a believer. He has no obligation. You know, as a, as a follower of Christ. And yet, I want you to see his obedience. You know, looking at chapter 7, or chapter 10, verse 7, this is after the angel has come in the presence of Cornelius as he's praying. And the angel spoke to him and then he departed. It says in verse 7, Cornelius called two of his household servants and a devout soldier from among those who waited on him continually. So when he had explained all these things to them, he sent them to Joppa. Understand, this took a degree of faith. He trusted God. He trusted that what God had said to him, send, yeah, send for this Simon Peter, who's staying with a tanner by the name of Simon in the town of Joppa. Go down there, you'll find him by the seaside slide, and bring him up here. And, and so here's this Roman centurion following the leadership of God that he doesn't truly, fully know, but he trusts God, and he's obedient to do. And notice how rapidly he does it. There's no delay. There's no discussion. There's no interrogation. He just simply does what God says to do. He sins for the Apostle Peter. I think it's so wonderful because not only is Cornelius exhibiting faith that is commendable for a person that doesn't know Jesus Christ yet, but he exhibits faith, but also we'll see that he exhibits a tremendous humility, which tells me that God is indeed working in this great military leader's heart. Because later in the chapter, we'll see in verse 24, when Peter does come to Caesarea, and it says, Now Cornelius was waiting for them, and he called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter was coming in, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. Of course, now, he wasn't supposed to worship Peter, but this is all he knows to do. But for a Roman centurion to fall down at anybody's feet except Caesar, suggests that he had... A spirit of humility that God was willing to and certainly would work through. And you know, the Bible tells us, in fact, Peter would tell us later in 1 Peter, in chapter 5, verse 6, he tells us that God resists the proud and gives, gives grace to the humble. And not only was Cornelius a man who was obedient to God, but he exhibited a humble spirit. Now, on the other hand, we looked, as we look at the split screen of activity, we go back to Joppa. 
and we watch what's going on with Peter. Because he's had this vision. God has told him, Peter, listen, the things that you once considered to be unclean, clean. With God, all things, clean. If I send you to it, you eat it. If I, if I send you on a mission, then you do it. Now, verse 17. Now, while Peter wondered within himself what this vision, which he had seen, meant, behold, the men who had been sent from Cornelius had made inquiry for Simon's, for, for Simon's house and stood before the gate. And they called and asked whether Simon, whose surname was Peter, was lodging there. While Peter thought about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are seeking you. Arise, therefore, go down, and go with them, doubting nothing. For I have sent them. Peter would probably have some doubts. <laughs> he would probably have some questions. Because they're going to explain to him his mission. So God just said, look, Peter, you're going to find three men. You don't know them from Adam's house cat. They're strangers, but you're going to go with them. Just do it. And don't ask questions. Do you think God sometimes suggests to you and me when He sends us on missions that maybe we have questions about? That maybe we are hesitant about? That maybe we wonder, does God really know? That God says, just do it. If I put that person on your heart, and this is someone I want you to interact with and to have a relationship with and to eventually share Christ with, then don't ask questions. Don't doubt me. How many times do we get waylaid and sidetracked by doubt? God convicts your heart. You sense that He's pointing you towards someone. You sense their lostness. You sense that God is saying to you, I want you to cross their path like Philip did, the Ethiopian eunuch. God is saying, go. And then you're, you're you know, like Porky Pig, you know, you're coming up with all kinds of excuses. You doubt, and, and God said, Don't doubt, just do it. And I'm thankful to God that Peter didn't doubt. Verse 21 Then Peter went down to the men who had been sent to him from Cornelius and said, Yes, I am he whom you seek. For what reason have you come? And they said, Cornelius the centurion. Now, normally that would make a Jewish fisherman go, Because. <laughs> It wasn't good news when a centurion wanted to see you. Usually they were going to take what you had to pay taxes or they were going to kill you or put you in prison. <laughs> Usually it wasn't a good thing. So they said, Cornelius the centurion, a just man, who, one who fears God, that probably helped, and has a good reputation among all the nation of the Jews, was divinely instructed by a holy angel to summon you to his house and to hear words from, him, from you. Then he invited them in and lodged them. Now, don't jump over that. Don't just take that and say, oh yeah, that's, that's nice. Instead of sending them out, you know, to find a hotel, he invited them in. Listen, that would never happen with a devout Jew. You'd never invite a Gentile into your house. You'd never get caught having a Gentile sit at your table, and yet Peter had a freedom. Now, remind, I remind you, before God had got a hold of him, he probably would have said, oh, look, 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 you guys, you Gentiles, ha, you stay outside, sleep in the shed, or go get a hotel room. No, come on in. Come, see, God has already worked in Peter's heart to prepare him. He invited them in, lodged them. On the next day, Peter went away with them, and some brethren with, uh, from Joppa accompanied him. Don't miss that. You say, oh, well, they were just probably curious. Some of Simon's household, maybe some men that were in the neighborhood said, I wonder what that centurion's up to. I think we'll go. No, no. They went because God sent them. It was very important that, they, that Peter went, but it was also very important that Peter had reliable witnesses. Because this was going to be a stink for the early church. The idea of, of reaching out to Gentiles with the gospel, non-Jews with the gospel, would create a uh, 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 just uh, uh, uproar in Jerusalem. And we'll see that in chapter 11. God understood the significance that Peter not go alone, but he take reliable Christian Jewish witnesses. And in chapter 11, verse 12, Peter says there were six of them that went with him. And so we see, here's Peter, a Christian leader, obediently following the Lord's instructions. He was confidently venturing into unfamiliar territory. 
You know, as I think about the faith chapter, chapter 11, I've already made reference to it. I'll take you back to chapter 11 because I think about another instrumental leader that God called to, to travel into uncharted, unfamiliar territory purely by faith. Listen to verse 8 of chapter 11 of Hebrews. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would afterward receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. Brothers and sisters, when you pack up your family, and you pack up your household and all your belongings, and you sever the connection with your local family and friends and community, and you follow a God that you can't see to a place that you've never been, the only explanation is faith. And I want you to understand that God may call you and call me into areas that we probably feel very uncomfortable with. He may lead you to people that you may, are, may be somewhat unfamiliar with. Some of you have already been there. And the only thing that will make you effective, that will help you to be obedient, is your faith. When God says, I want you to do it. I, I want you to go. You go. And so we see that Peter is following the Lord. What, what does a Jewish fisherman have in common with a Roman centurion? Nothing. No, absolutely nothing. Except these two men had an encounter with the living, resurrected Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it made all the difference. So Peter is obediently following the Lord's instructions and he boldly goes and he preaches as I want you to see. Pick up at verse 24. The following day they entered Caesarea. Now Cornelius was waiting for them and had called together his relatives and close friends. What does that say about Cornelius' faith? That God was going to not only work in his life but everybody in his household. He had a crowd waiting on Peter. As Peter was coming in, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up. I myself am, am also a man. You don't worship me. It's kind of like John's vision in Revelation where he falls down to worship the great angel. The angel said, Get up. Great day. Man, what are you doing? You want to get both of us fried? Yeah, I'm paraphrasing. I get excited. Listen, as we go and as we're being used by God, people may show great appreciation. They may show homage or whatever towards you. They may even almost worship. Listen, you make sure, you make sure any adoration that they have for what is happening in their lives as they're coming out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, as they're being saved from the penalty of their sin by the blood of Jesus Christ, you make sure all the credit goes to the Savior. It bothers me when I hear well-meaning Christians, I at least give them credit to say well-meaning, who go around with their chest puffed out. They talk about, oh, I went on this trip and we saved hundreds. I went to this crusade and we had thousands to come. And in the, we saved so many. Brothers and sisters, pardon the English, but you ain't saved Nobody. You never will save anybody. But you can lead them to the one who will. And when he does, have the, the sense, have the humility, have the faith to be able to say, don't, don't thank me, thank the Lord. Don't praise me, praise the Lord. Peter said, don't bow down to me. Uh-uh. Get up, I'm just a man. And as he talked with him, he went in, this is verse 27, and found many who had come together. Then he said to them, this takes, this takes boldness. This takes honesty. But remember, we're talking about Simon Peter, the one that told Jesus, I'll never deny you, and then ended up denying him three times. You know, the, the, the one that's always putting his foot in his mouth. But Peter is known to speak forth. So he just walks in. Just imagine walking into the living room with a bunch of Gentiles and you're a Jew. And he said, you know how unlawful it is for a Jewish man to keep company with, you, with or go into uh, uh, one of another nation. In other words, you know I'm not supposed to be in here with you dirty Gentiles, but I'm here. 
Peter just says, look, I know y'all are wondering. I'm wondering. I, I didn't plan this. You know as well as I do that a Jew would never come into the home of a Gentile. What, what Peter is saying, folks, folks, God's here. He's saying, God has set the stage. And he says, as he goes further, but God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. I think that is so wonderful. Talk about humility. Peter is confessing. He's saying, listen, whatever God has got in store for you all, I want you to know something. You need to know this right up front. God has done a marvelous change in this old boy's heart. There was a time I never would have been in your presence, certainly not thinking about sharing Christ. But he says, God has radically changed me. And he's changed my thinking towards Gentiles. And so he begins to share. Therefore I came without objection as soon as I was sent. I asked then, for what reason have you sent me? And Cornelius said, four days ago I was fasting until this hour. At that ninth hour I prayed in my house. And behold, a a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been answered and your arms are remembered in the sight of God. Send therefore to Joppa and call Simon here, whose surname is Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon a tanner by the sea. When he comes, he will speak to you. So I sent to you immediately and you have done well to come. Now therefore, we're all present before God to hear all the things that, all the things commanded you by God. He's not interested in Peter's opinion. He's not interested in Peter's rambling about fishing stories. He says, now, God has brought you here and I have assembled this crowd here. We are hungry. We are hungry. You remember how you were on the rooftop, Peter? We are hungry for what God is going to say through you. And I want you to see in obedience, Peter boldly, obediently preaches a complete Christ-centered gospel. In fact, when it says in verse 34, then Peter opened his mouth. That's a Greek colloquialism expression that means something important is about to be said. When the scripture says, and he opened his mouth, Peter was getting ready to lay it out there. And he opened his mouth and said, in truth I perceive that God shows no partiality. In other words, I'm coming to preach a universal gospel. First time in my life I've preached a universal gospel. I'm getting ready to preach a universal gospel. And folks, don't confuse that with universalism. Universalism says that everybody can get to God somehow through whatever means they choose. No, we know that's not true. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. What did Peter mean by a universal gospel? It meant that the gospel is now being offered to all people, all nations, not just to those who were descendants of Abraham. Hallelujah. Because that includes us. Unless we've got any, you know, ethnic Jews in the crowd. We need to get some ties through marriage, but yeah, but praise God. That's us. Verse 35, but in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. The word which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all, not just the Lord of the Jews, not just the Lord of the Jewish Christians, but he is the Lord of everyone. That word you know, which was proclaimed throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism, which John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Listen, I believe that Cornelius, being a Roman centurion, in the capital of the Judean region, he knew about Jesus. He'd heard. He'd heard about this Nazarene. He heard of John the Baptist in the great following that he had in the baptism of repentance. Listen, Peter simply reminded him, he's making the connection for, for Cornelius to put together two and two. He said, this John the Baptist, this Jesus of Nazareth, and he goes on to say in verse 39, and we are witnesses of all things which he did both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they killed by the hanging on a tree. 
Him God raised up on the third day and showed him openly, not to all the people, but to the witnesses chosen by God, even to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. Let me tell you something. Peter's making it very personal right now. He's, he's saying, listen, this is Jesus. This is his life. This is his ministry. This is who he is as the son of God. This is what happened. He was crucified. He was buried. He was raised on the third day. Listen, we saw him. There were witnesses, but we not only saw him, we ate with him. Because you see, Gentiles would have had some, some suspicions about spirit beings and things like that. Peter says, no, he wasn't some spirit that was raised. He was really Jesus Christ bodily raised. I saw him. I ate with him. I touched him. Peter says, we witnessed that in verse 42. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that it is he who was ordained by God to judge, to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets witness. In other words, Peter's helping uh, Cornelius to see because Cornelius, being a God-fearer, understood that the prophets had talked about the coming Messiah. Peter says, listen, not only did we witness him, even before he came, the prophets were given a, a witness of this Jesus. He's substantiating the Savior, if you will. And Peter continues to preach this bold, complete gospel. But look at verse 43. There's more packed into that verse than you can imagine. Because what is happening is Peter's laying the gospel. He's laying the gospel. God's watching. God's waiting. The stage is set. Hearts are being tenderized by the truth of the gospel. God is preparing people. And then in verse 43 it says, To him all the prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. Is that the end of Peter's message? Probably not. But guess what? That's all God needed for him to say. That's all that God needed the people to hear. Because in the very next verse... We see God do a divine, marvelous work that would change not only the lives of the people in that room, but it would change the nature of the body of Christ, the church, for centuries and into eternity. It's interesting. Paul, when he was converted, was told by the Lord he was going to be the apostle the messenger to the Gentiles. Why didn't Paul? He came right through Caesarea on his way to Tarsus. Why didn't Paul have the honor of winning this Gentile, the first Gentile? Why didn't Paul set the stage? Because you see, God understood that it was absolutely essential that this very crucial watershed event that would transform the nature of the church for ages to come would be done in a credible manner by a credible leader. It was going to be very important that the church, the Jewish Christians, would buy in to what God was doing. It would take a man of the magnitude and the respect and the tradition of Peter, it would take his leadership role to convince, as you'll see in chapter 11. God set the stage for Peter to be there. He preached to this point and in verse 44, we see God do something magnificent and marvelous. Not only is prayer the origination of evangelism and obedience the activation of evangelism, but here we go, folks. Faith. Faith is the culmination of evangelism. Without faith, there is no conversion. Without faith, there is no salvation. Without faith, there is no transformation of a life. The prayer was there. The obedience was there. But then God did His thing. Listen, every one of those people gathered there with Cornelius didn't realize it, but God had done a gracious and a wonderful and a powerful and a divine work. He gave them faith. So that when Peter said what he said about Jesus dying for the sins of those who would believe upon him, that was all it took because their faith 
just like a mighty hook, just reached up, grabbed a hole. Listen, they didn't have to reach far because they didn't realize it, but just rushing down that faster than a speeding bullet was the Spirit of God that fell down. Listen, you. Uh, sometimes we can't even appreciate the spiritual dynamic of what God is doing. He's pouring out His Spirit upon these lost people for the first time. And while Peter was speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard. That means all. Cornelius, his family, his friends, everyone. And those of the circumcision, that's the six men, the witnesses who came with him, who believed were astonished as many as came with Peter because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. I can imagine those six Jewish men were standing there. They could hardly believe what they heard Peter preach this powerful message and just out of nowhere, before he finished, before he gave an invitation, whoosh, it's like boom. And, and there's a man, well, I shut my mouth. Can Gentiles are getting saved. Can you believe this? Look at there. Look at how did they know that? Because see, God wasn't finished. Verse 46. For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. God doesn't always give people the gift of tongues just because you get saved. That's been a misinterpretation by the charismatic extremes. Listen, God gave a sign. This was another one of the signs that God gave. He wanted to convince not only those Gentiles, but He wanted to convince Peter. He wanted to convince the six Jewish Christians who went with Peter that He was in the business of saving Gentiles. These Gentiles began to speak in tongues. They began to magnify God. Listen, does that make you think of something else that occurred earlier in the book of Acts? Maybe chapter 2? Pentecost. Some scholars said this was the Gentile Pentecost. This was the second Pentecost. Why would God do that? Why? Because He wanted all of Christendom, all of the Jewish believers in, in Jerusalem and everywhere else to know that, listen, what had happened with the Gentile was just as good as what happened to them. It's the same God. It's the same Holy Spirit. It's the same Jesus Christ. It's the same salvation. They're just as saved as you are. Faith is a culmination of evangelism. Faith is a substance of things hoped for. It's the evidence of things not seen. For by grace, Paul says in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace are you saved through faith. 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 God moves the hearts of all who heard the truth that day. And Peter and company recognized the Gentiles' faith was real. And it was authentic. How, how do we know that Peter was convinced? Look at verse 47. This is Peter speaking. Can anyone forbid water? That these should be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? Just as we have? Did you get that? Just like we did, boys. Go get some water. Is there any reason? Can anybody think of any reason why we shouldn't baptize this household of Gentiles right now? It made me think about the urgency of the eunuch. The Ethiopian eunuch, remember? Going down the road, Peter explained, the, I mean, uh, Philip explained the gospel. The Ethiopian eunuch says, hey, look, there's some water. Is there any reason why I shouldn't be baptized? Philip said, well, if you truly believe that the Lord Jesus Christ, he says, I believe. Let's get it done. Peter says, these people are Christians. There's no doubt in my mind. There's no doubt in my mind. These are believers in Jesus Christ and we owe it to them to do what Christ has commanded us to do. Do you see the fulfillment of the Great Commission? Go therefore, make disciples, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I don't believe Peter just left them hanging. I don't think he just said, okay, I baptize y'all, I'm out of here. I've got to get back to Jerusalem now, tell everybody what's happening. No, look, look further, look further. And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord, to be baptized. Who did the baptizing? Didn't say Peter did it. Uh, one, one commentator says it was probably the six Jewish Christians. Peter knew. God knew. It, it's important to get them involved. And so they were baptizing. Peter was given the blessing. And there they go. Look at verse 48. And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. Then they asked him to stay a few days. For what? Fellowship meal? Yeah, they probably had a lot of fellowship. 
This is the first time they had fellowship with Gentiles and Gentiles with Jews like this. Listen, the church does dynamic things in social relationships. It brings together people that would never think of coming together. God is in the business of reconciling. Isn't that what Paul was saying? That we are ministers of reconciliation? We have a message of reconciliation? Listen, they invited him to stay, but I'm going to tell you something. I believe Peter was teaching Discipleship 101. Because Jesus said, in addition to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, what did he say? Teach them and teach them all things whatsoever I command you. And I believe Peter was doing some discipleship. He was preparing Cornelius and those early, early Gentile believers to follow Christ as, as disciples. I'm closing with this point of application. Are you praying? If I ask you to take your worship guide and write down at the bottom of your worship guide the last time that you consciously call a name out to God of a person who is lost and undone without Jesus Christ. Or better still, even a person that may think that they're a Christian or say they're a Christian and they never go to church. When's the last time? Was it this morning? Was it yesterday sometime? Was it earlier this week? Or has it been so long that you can't even remember? Or what if I ask you, take your worship God, because there's plenty of space there where you're supposed to be taking notes, and I don't see anybody burning up there, so, so down there's probably plenty of space. If I said, okay, right now I want you to write down the names of the people that God puts on your heart that do not know Jesus Christ, that you're willing to pray for and pray earnestly for, And then those that you're willing to let God lead you to, you're going to put a check beside their name. You're going to be obedient. God said, go. It may be humiliating. They may reject you. But God said, go. And you say, okay, Lord, I, I, I feel you calling me to this one. I'll check. Are you willing to be obedient? And then do you have faith? Peter had faith. He didn't have an idea how God was going to work this thing through. But he went by faith. Cornelius had faith. And God gave them the faith that enabled them to be saved. Do you trust God? That if He will place a person or persons on your heart, if He's going to send you to someone, do you trust God that He will do in that person's heart what He did in Cornelius and his family. I tell people when they go to witness, when you go to talk to people about becoming a disciple of Jesus Christ, you're not a salesman. You're not trying to twist their arms and sell them on something. You're just a witness. You're just going to say, listen, I don't really fully understand, but I just know one thing. The other night I was praying, God put you on my heart. I've been praying hard for you. And God told me to come see you. And this is the thing that God has told me that I need to share with you. Would you just give me a few minutes that I can at least share this with you? And you share and leave the results to God because you can't generate faith in anybody's heart. I can't. But if it's God's will, He will. That's evangelism, folks. That's how it worked 2,000 years ago. That's how it works today.